Thank you, Lord, for your written word, which reveals to us the living word of God in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you that in him has been revealed all wisdom and grace, all knowledge and understanding, all truth and hope, all life and light. In his name we pray, amen. A reading from 1 Peter chapter 2, beginning with verse 9, the word of the Lord. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Rena. I was nine years old when I decided I hated God. I hated him because I believed he hated me first. The words of David Nasser, he explains, it was 1979 during the middle of the Iranian revolution. The Ayatollah Khomeini and his religious zealots had recently overthrown the existing government and seized political power. Hundreds of thousands of people had their lives turned upside down in the chaos. He says, my father was a military officer in the previous regime, and we had grown up on a military base. A couple weeks into the revolution, I was at school when we were called outside for an unexpected assembly. A soldier read off three names, including mine, and called us to the front. He removed a gun from his holster. He quoted from the Quran and told me he was going to kill me in order to deliver a message to supporters of the old regime. The school principal intervened. The soldier relented. I was traumatized. I rushed home. I told my father everything that had happened. He was usually a very stern man, but at that moment he took me up into his lap and he pledged to keep me safe. He revealed that plans were already underway for our eventual escape from Iran. To me, nine years old, this felt less like escaping from Iran. We were escaping from God. We were leaving our home, our family, our wealth, our friends, everything we held dear, all because our country had been victimized by religious, religious people. Just days later, the situation grew desperate. Soldiers barged into our home. They dragged my father outside. The previous day, revolutionary guards had whisked one of my father's colleagues off to a public park where he was brutally tortured and he died several hours later. I was nine years old and I decided I hate God. I hate him because he hated me first. It's a picture of human religion at its most violent, its most heartless, its most controlling, its most cruel. And yet we see in the pages of the Gospel a very different religion. We see Jesus 
And we're going to read about an encounter that we looked at last week. We're going to read it again and look and focus on what happened as a consequence of this encounter. It's an encounter between Jesus and a woman who had a storied past, you might say. This is John chapter 4. I'm going to read verses 7 to 19 and then 25 to 30 and then verses 39 to 42. This is our Lord's Gospel. When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, Will you give me a drink? His disciples had gone into town to buy food, and the Samaritan woman said to him, You're a Jew, I'm a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? Jews don't associate with Samaritans. And Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. Sir, the woman said, you have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us this well and drank it uh, uh, himself, as did also his sons and flocks and herds? And Jesus answered, everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks the water that I give him will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. He told her, Go, call your husband and come back. I have no husband, she replied. And Jesus said to her, you are right when you say that you have no husband. The fact is that you've had five husbands and the man you're with now is not your husband. What you have said is quite true. Sir, the woman said, I can see that you are a prophet. Verse 25, the woman said, I know that Messiah called Christ is coming and when he comes, he'll explain everything to us. And then Jesus declared, I who speak to you am he. And just then his disciples returned, and they were surprised to find him talking with a woman. But no one asked, what do you want, or why are you talking with her? And then leaving her water jar, the woman went back to town and said to the people, come, see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Christ? And they came out of the town and made their way toward him. And then in verse 39, many of the Samaritans from the town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me everything I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they urged him to stay with them, and he stayed two days. And because of his words, many more became believers. And they said to the woman, we no longer believe just because of what you said. Now we have heard for ourselves and we know that this man really is the Savior of the world. We see here a woman who's prepared to testify about Jesus right from the first day, the first hour she sees Jesus. She only has just come to faith and she's immediately telling these townspeople about Jesus. We're going to ask what that looks like. 
We're going to ask why that's really a hard thing for her and for us, a hard thing to do. And we're going to ask how it's possible to pay the price for being public about being a follower of Jesus. First, what's it look like to be public about being a follower of Jesus? It means speaking about what you know. Uh, you know, we read in verse 39 that a lot of people from that town, quote, believed in Jesus because of the woman's testimony. That word testimony is a legal term. It means to, to bear witness in a court of law to what we know to be true, to bear witness to the things that we've seen and can verify from personal experience. A, a testimony provides authentication to a fact that is relevant to other people. So it means speaking about what you know, and there's both a subjective and an objective component there. Subjectively, uh, the, the, the woman's testimony is that Jesus told me everything I ever did. That's a very personal thing. That would only be true to her specifically, but she's not giving a theological treatise. She's not going into elaborate detail about the theological significance of the person of Jesus and his hypostatic union with the Logos. She's not lecturing them about the incarnation of Jesus having two natures. She's simply describing what she experienced. Uh, Jesus told her everything there was to know about herself. He knew it all. She's testifying to the fact. She's authenticating something about Jesus by describing her own subjective experience of Jesus. And she tells them that this man actually associated with her and had a conversation with her at the well. And, and like Keith talked about last week, that was something worth commenting on. She had an experience as somebody who was Samaritan and Jesus was Jewish. She was kind of not orthodox in her faith because Samaritans were a bunch of screaming heretics and Jesus was a Jewish rabbi. You know, she was a woman. Jesus was a man. Men and women did not mix unless you were uh, immediate relatives. Uh, verse 27, the disciples return and they're astonished. They're shocked. Jesus is talking to a woman and that kind of woman, uh, you know, he crossed every line there was to cross. Race, gender, religion, reputation. It's an incredible experience she's describing. And then he knew all this stuff about her. Uh, you know, there's a subjective component to testifying about Jesus. To be being public about your faith is being public about how you have experienced Jesus of Nazareth. What that has meant for you personally. Um, Keith talked last week about how unusual it was for a woman to be pulling water from a well in the middle of the day. You did it first thing in the day before chores, before it got hot. There's a reason. This woman has a history. She's avoiding people in town for a reason. She's been married four or five times, and she's shacking up with another guy now, and all the townspeople know what kind of woman she is, and she doesn't want their attention on her. She's avoiding them. I, I remember... Gosh, this was probably 20 years ago. I worked as a social worker uh, in a group home for uh, adults with developmental disabilities. And uh, I often had the midnight shift. Anybody ever work midnight shift? You go grocery shopping at hours that no one else goes. And I remember once I was, it was probably one in the morning, and I was on my way home from work, and uh, I stopped in Walgreens. I had to pick up some stuff, and Walgreens, well, at least that one's always open. And I remember I was walking through, the place was pretty deserted, but there was one other customer. It was a young guy, 20, 25 years old, wearing a hoodie, and it was the middle of the summer, but he had the hood pulled over. And as he walked by, I could see his entire face 
had been so severely burned and it had healed up, but his entire face was nothing but twisted scar tissue. And I remember my heart just sank. What is it like to live a life where you have to do your shopping at one o'clock in the morning because people will stare at you? Children will point at you. People will say names. People will quickly avert their their gaze, to be so disfigured that you feel you have to hide. That is, you know, my heart broke for this guy, and that is what this woman's life was. She was avoiding people, afraid of their rejection, afraid of their stares, uh, afraid of their comments, afraid of all the things they're going to say about her. That's why she's here at this time of day. She doesn't want to be whispered about, and Jesus approaches her so purposefully. Did you notice the little detail? Where were the 12 disciples? They had been sent into the town to pick up food. Now, food in the first century, this will be in a few weeks when I preach on it, uh, was bread. Uh, Picture pita bread. Now, could the 12 of you go into town to pick up a pack of pita bread? Jesus is getting rid of them for a reason. He is approaching this woman with a very complex past and a lot of shame And he does not want them around to compound her shame as he has this semi-private conversation with her at the well at a time when no one else is there in the heat in the middle of the day. And Jesus approaches her and, and tells her about living waters. And she wants to know about the living waters. She's saying, yes, Jesus, tell me. Tell me about these living waters. He says, first go and bring back your husband. Seems kind of cruel, doesn't it? setting her up. I don't have a husband. No, you've had five of them, and the guy you're living with now is not your husband. Is that mean? Would that increase her shame? Yes, it would increase her shame, but what Jesus is doing is something incredibly beautiful. Uh, this is something that she's probably never experienced. Uh, uh, you know, this woman... Jesus is opening up the possibility for her to be open and honest, to be known as the sinful person that she is, and he still wants to give her living water. It's something incredibly tender. It's something very, very kind. Um, She's grasping here something of the welcome of Jesus, something of the soul's satisfaction, something of an experience of, of grace, not by becoming somebody who is worthy of grace, that would not be grace, but being the woman she is right here, right now, and being loved. There's a subjective message here. There's also an objective message. Uh, you know, the objective testimony is a powerful thing. When you're called to testify before a court of law, The judge and the jury don't really care about your pet perspective or how you feel about things. All they care about are the facts. And there's an objective quality, what is actually true. And she goes back to her own town and she says, I think this man might be the Messiah. I think this might be the Christ. Uh, It's not her personal Savior. This is, the quote, is the Savior of the world. It's an objective claim about who Jesus is. Uh, and here this woman, she's testifying about what she knows. There's a subjective component of how Jesus has impacted her 
And there's an objective component about who Jesus is as the Savior of the world that's true. Whether you feel like it's true or not, it's true whether or not, you know, it doesn't matter how many trees fall in the woods, Jesus is the Savior of the world. That's objective fact. Now, why is it hard, though, to testify about that? Why is it hard to be public about being a follower of Jesus? It was hard for her. I mean, look at her experience. She is the most scandalous sinner in town. Everybody knows her business. She's having to avoid them all the time. She has very little going for her. And yet Jesus, she encounters him. And what does she do? She goes and tells all of these other people. You say, Greg, that's proselytizing. Well, you can call it whatever you like. It's the way human nature works, that when you see a beautiful sunset and you're stunned by it, you want to take a snap of photo and put it on Facebook so everybody else can share that experience of beauty. It's the way the heart works. When you're excited about something, when your hope is built, when you see it and it's so beautiful, you want to share it. And that's what she's doing. And yet that's very hard for her because this is going to involve an even higher level of transparency for her because she's saying, Jesus told me everything about me. Oh, what might that be, Shirley? You know, just, just, it's a very, very difficult thing to do. And yet it's instinctive for her. It requires, you know, when you're open about your faith, there is an emotional nakedness that comes with that, a transparency. It means your friends and your neighbors and your associates and your family members all know that you're crazy about Jesus. Uh, this means you're not hiding it. You're not covering it up. You're not protecting yourself. You know, you can't testify about Jesus if you can't be open and honest about your relationship with him. And that requires nakedness emotionally. Because if you're being honest, People will know that you're a follower of Jesus. They will know because they will watch you process the difficulties of this life as a Christian. Your friends, your neighbors, your family members, your associates will see you in conflict choosing to forgive because God in Christ chose to forgive you when you were wrong. They will see you interact and, and loving your enemies because Jesus loved you when you were his enemy. Uh, if you're really a follower of Jesus and you're not lying about it to your friends, then that's going to require an emotional nakedness that can lead, absolutely lead to rejection. And that makes it hard. It's also hard, not only because it might lead to rejection and it requires this nakedness, but it's hard because you may not have all the words right. Uh, look at how little this Samaritan woman knows. It did not stop her. She knows absolutely nothing about the Incarnation she has never heard of the doctrine of the Trinity. She has never read a single word of the Bible so far as we know because Samaritans only had a massively corrupted version of about five of the books and people didn't own books because books were hand-printed scrolls and we don't even know if she could read. A typical you know, Samaritan would have not been reading the Bible. Books were incredibly expensive and she probably couldn't explain Paul's doctrine of justification, which he hadn't written yet. She had not even been baptized. She knew that Jesus was offering living water and that he was probably the Christ or Messiah, even though her understanding as a Samaritan of what that was would have been very limited. And the villagers concluded that Jesus was the Savior of the world, not just the Savior of the Jews. But that's all they knew. And that was all that was required because God was just looking for her willingness to testify. And all these people became followers of Jesus because she was willing. Um, you know, in Presbyterian circles, 
because we believe in an educated clergy, we require people to get a bachelor's degree and a master's degree in order to preach, or at least in order to, to pastor a church. And, um, and yet there's a very different vision of, and, and we, we often think that clergy, pastors are the people who do the ministering. They're the ministers uh, in a church. And yet what we see in the New Testament is a vision where every single Christian is called into the mission of God. Jesus has called you to be salt and light. He has called you to proclaim the faith. He has called you to help bring the kingdom to bear in your life and to be open and honest and public about your faith in Jesus. Uh, you are the missionaries of this church, first and foremost, and you are the ministers of this church. And God has placed you here in St. Louis in order to bring salvation to people who do not yet know the grace of Jesus. Uh, I remember as a brand new Christian, um, I had been an atheist just a couple years earlier, uh, brand new believer, did not know anything. I had never read through the Bible. I had been a Christian less than a year before my campus ministry had me leading an investigative Bible study uh, for international students. One was a guy named Monsef Belyamani from Casablanca, Morocco. Uh, he was Muslim. And the other was an agnostic guy named Ali Strubenmuller from the Black Forest of Germany. And then there was another, another American kid in there. And I was leading their Bible study. And I had never read through the Bible yet. Um, you know, the, it was Campus Crusade for Christ. Today it's called Crew uh, and their, 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 their basic approach was win, build, send. Win them to Christ, build them up, and send them out pretty much immediately. And, uh, and that was her experience here. All God needed was her willingness. And she was a missionary to her own hometown with absolutely no moral credentials whatsoever, no theological credentials. She just could say, I think this guy's the Christ. He told me everything there was to know about myself. Um, but that can be hard. It requires an emotional nakedness, and it, and, it, and it requires you to be willing to step out when you may not know what you're talking about. And you have to be okay with that. You have to swallow that. You, you cannot be perfect. You can't be in control. It's going to be hard, especially if you're really smart and you like having all your answers and your ducks in a row. This is just throwing it out there and seeing what sticks, and the Holy Spirit does the rest. And there could be a cost. Uh, remember this Samaritan woman, she was a social outcast. She avoided the townspeople like the plague. Uh, they looked down on her. For her to go around town telling people about Jesus uh, is a risky thing. Her social standing was already so low, but you better believe it could have gotten lower. Oh, Samaritans, this Jewish rabbi's the Messiah. Risky. It could get worse. Some of you know that pressure well. Your, your prospects of gaining tenure at your university will not go up when you name Jesus as your Savior. You will, you will not be more respected within the art scene for telling people that Jesus is Savior of the world. Among secular Christian people in St. Louis, Christianity is not just viewed as something wrong, it's viewed as something dangerous. Yes, there are still places in North America where I can go and tell them that I am a Christian pastor and they will say, oh, isn't that lovely? And then they'll change the topic. Those are the good places. You know, there are other places like my neighborhood where I tell them I'm a Christian pastor and they feel threatened because Christian pastors are dangerous. Let me tell you, in my part of town, people are way more comfortable with my sexual orientation than they, than they are with my religious orientation because my naming Jesus is a threat. It's scandalous. 
It's worrisome. There's, there's a risk, folks, in North America today of naming Jesus as your Savior. There are people who will not feel safe around you. There are people who will feel threatened. There will people, be people who will reject you for testifying about Jesus. People within your friendships, within your community, your reputation could be damaged. The cost carried is one carried by followers of Jesus throughout all time and throughout all the world. Um, Noreen is a young woman in the Middle East who recently decided to follow Jesus. In her final year at university, she came to faith from a Muslim background. She's faced opposition from her father and from her sisters. Her mother passed away a few years ago. A few months ago, her family found a Bible that she had hidden in her room and he got very angry. How dare you betray us? How dare you dishonor us like this? How stupid to even consider a false religion. It's all brainwashing, he said. They told her that they would forgive her and forget all about it if she denied Jesus and returned to Islam. In the midst of this, she kept trying to talk to her family about Jesus. Her dad got so angry at one point that he took a pot of boiling water off of the stove and poured it on her. Her sisters beat her savagely. She begged them even then, have you read the Bible? Please read it yourself. What it's saying about Jesus, it's true. Jesus is the Savior. She woke up in a hospital bed. Her burns were so severe she had to stay there for eight days. No one from her family visited her throughout those eight days. When they discharged her, she got in a taxi and went home only to find that her family had moved out of the house to an unknown location while she was in the hospital. All that was left in the house was a single box with a few of her possessions within it. Yet she clings to the word of Jesus that we're to expect suffering and persecution if we follow him. Anyone who loves their father or mother more than him isn't worthy of him. She said that even though so much has been taken away from her, she says, I am still thankful that I know Jesus. And I'm thankful for my church family. They've provided me clothes. They've given me food. They've given me a place to live while I heal. It's hard to testify about Jesus. We're called to be public about being followers of Jesus, but that's hard. So how is it possible? Friends, it's possible because Jesus knows everything about you. And he still gives you living water. You know, this whole situation where Jesus basically exposes her sin. He's approaching her. He knows everything about her, but he's still approaching her. He's still engaging. He's still dialoguing. He's still in a posture of grace. He's asking for her help to get him water. He's been willing to associate with her even though he knows everything about her. It's an incredibly gentle maneuver to get her out of a place of hiding and pretending into a place of grace because grace is only available to big shameful sinners like us. It means that Jesus knows about the affair. He knows about the abortion. He knows about why you really got fired from that job. Jesus knows your internet history. Jesus knows what you think about when no one else is around. Jesus knows the grumblings of your heart. Jesus knows about the bitter root of anger inside of you. Jesus knows how you talk about people behind their back. Jesus sees and knows everything about you, and he still wants to give you living 
water. That's what's so tender and compassionate about the way he approaches this woman. He knows her. He loves her at the same time. Jesus knows all these things about you and still wants to bless you. Jesus still wants to know you. He takes people who are total moral failures and he blesses us. You can totally make a wreck of your life, do horrible things, and Jesus still wants to give you living water, friends. That's the gospel. He sees everything, and he still wants to be the one to satisfy your soul. I read an account recently. It was about 25 years old of a Christian author. Um, He had spoken a couple years earlier at a Christian group, and a member of the audience had followed up with him by letter asking if he ever was in his town if he would visit uh, because he had been diagnosed with HIV and this was back before antiretroviral drugs made it possible to live a normal life with the disease and so he knew his time on earth was limited. It was about two years later that this author found himself in the man's home city uh, along with a teammate and uh, so he visited the man and at this point the man had developed AIDS His immune system was shutting down. He had lost so much weight. He was probably down to 80 or 90 pounds. He knew he was dying. He had attended this talk two years earlier, knowing he was HIV positive, but he was hungry for something more than he had found in this life. He had found Jesus, and he had gone to the talk because he was spiritually thirsty and longed for living water, something that would satisfy and make this life worth living. When they walked into the man's apartment, he was so surprised, this look of incredible joy glowing on his face. His mom and dad stood next to him with friends of his. He, he, he was a bag of bones at that point, uh, but, but he muttered words of gratitude, and everyone gathered around and prayed with him, and when they turned to leave, the author noticed a book on the table. It was R.C. Sproul's book, The Hunger for Significance, because in his loneliest moment, facing the end of his life, His greatest hunger was being filled. His hunger for significance. His hunger to know God. His hunger to have eternal life. His hunger for Jesus who is the living water. That's what Jesus can do. People are able to endure unavoidable passages of this life. Shortly after this man went home to be with his Lord, knowing that his life had not been meaningless, knowing what's past his prologue for the age to come. Friends, Are any of you here thirsty today? Are you thirsty for Jesus? Do you long for what only He can give? Do you long for living water? Look at Jesus. Talk to Jesus. Tell Him you need Him. He will listen. He will answer. Tell Him you want Him. Invite Him to pour into you what He has and who He is. He's telling you that springs of living water will well up in you to eternal life. He knows everything about you and still wants to be inside of you pouring His water into you. He's the one who died for you in order to give that to you. Verse 21, verse 23, twice in this passage, He says an hour is coming and that almost always refers to the cross in which Jesus took our guilt and took our shame and bore it all the way to the cross so that he could give us instead streams of living water flowing up from within us. Tim Keller says it this way. He says, Jesus thirsted so that we could get living water. He shriveled under the wrath of divine justice and got what we deserved in our place. He thirsted so he could say, I don't care about your sexual past. 
I don't care that you killed people. I have living water for you. Repent and turn to me. It's the beauty of the gospel, friends. And when that captures your heart, it makes you want to share it with others as this woman couldn't stop from telling others about the Jesus who knew everything about her and still was going to give her living waters. Nasser said, I was nine years old when I decided that I hated God because I believed he hated me first. My father had been abducted, his colleague tortured to death by religious people. I wanted nothing to do with God. And yet he continues, to everyone's surprise, my father made it home alive. But this only strengthened our resolve to get out of Iran. He devised a plan to leverage my mother's heart issues as a means of escape. And so we met a few trusted doctors offering everything we owned, our home, our cars, our clothes, our money, they would, if they would risk helping us. And one day my mother began faking chest pains. She was rushed to the hospital where doctors assessed her and recommended a trip to Switzerland for open heart surgery. From that point forward, we were running for our lives. We made it to the plane and eventually reached Switzerland. We sought an American embassy, uh, the American embassy to apply for political asylum, but the U.S. wasn't yet allowing Iranians in. After a while, we traveled to Germany, hoping for a more sympathetic consulate. One day, my mother su suggested praying to the God of America, whose name evidently was Jesus. If only they knew. Maybe the thought, maybe Jesus would let us into his country. And so her plan, it sounds silly in retrospect, but it worked. A week later, they were flying to America. It says, we settled in Texas because my father had done some previous training at Fort Hood. Living in a military town in a patriotic state, I did, it didn't take long for me to figure out that I wasn't welcome. I was constantly bullied. I was joked about. I was picked on. I was harassed and laughed at. Everywhere we lived, we were outcasts. Weirdos who could not acclimate to the culture. On the day before I started high school, my father found me crying in my room. I explained to him that no one liked me, that I got beat up constantly, and I wanted to return to Iran. By this time, my father had achieved modest financial success. And so that day, I got an extreme makeover, or so it seemed to my peers. I got new clothes, a new haircut, and a car. I walked into school as a new man. Outwardly, I had mastered the popularity game overnight, but inwardly, I was still fragile and insecure. A few months after graduation, a friend asked why I seemed so down. I explained that all of my friends were moving away. I was feeling isolated. He suggested coming with him to church the next morning, and despite all my religious baggage, I conceded that I would go but only if my parents gave me permission. To my shock, they didn't immediately shoot down the idea. Unbeknownst to me, some people from this church had been dining at the restaurant my father owned. When they noticed he was shorthanded, they left their seats. They picked up towels and they began waiting on and bussing tables throughout the lunch hour. For days, they kept returning and serving. Eventually, the music minister invited my father to Wednesday night choir practice, and he felt obligated to attend. So the choir director explained the restaurant's need for temporary help, and volunteers from the church covered for the next two weeks, and their kindness touched my father's heart. 
And so I walked into that enormous church one Sunday morning as a youth rally was taking place. I noticed all the friends I used to party with, so I approached them like usual, but they were acting strangely. They all had Bibles, and they used super spiritual words that I didn't understand. Within five minutes, everyone was dispersing, except Larry No. Everyone in our town knew Larry. He was a local legend. He was a linebacker from a rival football team who was outspoken about his Christian faith. I had mocked him at a party the year before. I feared a confrontation, but he assured me he only wanted to sit with me. Throughout the Bible study, he made sure I felt included. He let me borrow his Bible. He flipped it to the correct passage so I wouldn't get lost. The next night, 17 teenagers from church showed up at my house, and for three hours they visited with me and shared the gospel, even though I wasn't interested. They kept coming each Monday, and on Sunday and Wednesday I was at their church. One Sunday night, the preacher invited people forward to give their lives to God. I was afraid. I slipped out quickly and drove home thinking I was done with this whole church stuff. I arrived home. I wanted to show God who was boss of my life. I took one of the youth group Bibles. I doused it with lighter fluid. I was going to set it in the backyard grill and and light it on fire, but I, I couldn't find a match. I was frustrated. I was curious at the same time. I opened this Bible reeking of lighter fluid and I began reading it. And when I came to the story of Peter walking on the water toward Jesus, something changed in my heart. And for the first time in my life, I became alive. God was calling me to step out, out of myself, out of my excuses, out of my self-pity, out of my anger. And that night in my bedroom, I called out to Jesus. My father immediately reproached me. You can't become a Christian, he said. We are Muslims. Assuming I'd get over it like any other teenage phase, they let me keep reading the Bible that smelled like lighter fluid, but getting baptized sent them over the edge. When I arrived home afterwards, my father had a duffel bag packed for me. He said I was dead to him, and then I had to leave. That night, I called Larry and told him I was homeless. He invited me to come live with him and six other interns in a house that belonged to the church. In the months that followed, they helped me grow tremendously in my walk with Jesus. And meanwhile, one by one, God started saving my family. First, my sister came to faith at a campus ministry event on campus. Then my mother and brother became Christians. We prayed relentlessly for my father, and eventually he too gave his life to Jesus Christ. God, in his grace, turned our tragedy into testimony. Though I hated him as a child, I can now see he was holding us and holding me all the way along. Friends, let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you for saving sinners like us. Thank you, Jesus, that you know everything about us and yet you still want to give us living water. Thank you, Jesus, for your love, for your compassion, and for your grace. We give you thanks in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.